0: Not quite yet. <laughs> Good morning, all. There's snow on the ground, there's lights on the houses, and many of you have put up Christmas trees, and even the church is showing signs that Christmas is near, but not here yet. There's still some more waiting ahead, there's still more time for preparations left. Um, there's still 21 days until Christmas. And uh, most of you here probably are thinking, wow, that has really came up quick. Um, some of you may be having a minor panic attack, thinking about the preparations that you still have to do for family gatherings and gift giving and card sending. There, uh, There's a lot of preparation and excitement for all the events that surround this holiday season. But what holiday was that again? Oh yes, Christmas. Uh, I know we're all well aware of the reason for the season, and his name is Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And in the middle of all of our other preparations, Jesus can sometimes get buried underneath programs and purchasing and packaging and practicing and more preparing. Um, Today, let's make a point of adding one thing to the top of our Christmas planning list, and that is Jesus. Jesus. Uh, Whether you have to put a sign in your dining room or whether you need to get on your phone and put a reminder that pops up every day for the next 21 days, uh, let's remember that Jesus is the reason for Christmas. Um, Let's get our hearts prepared to celebrate. Uh, The world waited for the coming Messiah since the first day that sin entered the Garden of Eden. The Old Testament is full of prophecies and symbols pointing to the coming Christ and God's people waited thousands of years for him to come. And even 700 years had passed since Isaiah and Micah gave some details about the coming Savior. In Isaiah seven fourteen, it says, All right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child she will give birth to the son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrath, are only a small village among all of the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf." We uh, we have a hard time waiting for anything these days, but can you imagine being tempted or, or being uh, teased with these promises and then having to wait generations for them to come? You can imagine some losing hope that the day would ever come, but then it did, and it was announced by the heavenly hosts of angels singing, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill towards men. Let's remember today that uh, this... Holiday season is a celebration of a long-awaited Savior that's come and set us free. Um, before we uh, dive in today to uh, the last section of First Peter, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you that uh, that you sent your Son, that you uh, didn't abandon man in in sin, um, in his. Uh, path that that only led to death and destruction lord but you loved us you cared for us and you provided a savior to set us free lord um, we just uh, honor you we remember you today um, and th- this month this year uh, and especially at this time we celebrate the Savior born the promised Savior fulfilling prophecies um, showing us that you, God, are powerful, that you are in control, and that you uh, are able to uh, fulfill your plans no matter what obstacles maybe uh, that, that Satan may throw in your, in your way or attempt to distort or disrupt. Um, God, you're in control, and he is powerless to stop you, and uh, we just are going to worship you and celebrate your coming. This year, in Jesus' name, amen. Hard for me to, to pray and not kind of get into what the message is about today. So if you're wondering uh, why I was I was uh, talking about the devil, um, you'll see in the end of chapter 5, uh, Peter kind of digs into that. So today we're going to be uh, going to 1 Peter chapter 5, where we find Peter concluding uh, this letter that was sent to the persecuted church that's scattered throughout Rome, throughout the region, um, and in this last chapter, Peter addresses how to lead, humility, worry, and warning about Satan, all in about nine verses. And that's before he gives his uh, last reminder of hope. So we're going to dive in with uh, the first verse, chapter 5, verse 1. And now a word to you who are elders in the church. Um, just so the rest of you don't shut down thinking this is not for you. Um, This is an encouragement from Peter to those who are leaders in the church, but the principles are still applicable to everybody. Um, So whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a parent, or a grandparent, or even someone who's just older and have some wisdom to share uh, with somebody who's younger than you, um, you can still find application for this. It is Peter's appeal that we take our role seriously and serve well. Elders in the church, um, we need to pay special attention to this because it is specifically addressed to us. But before we move forward, um, we want to notice that the verse starts with the word, and now. Some translations say, therefore. And as many of you know, if you see the word, therefore, it is good to go find out what it is, therefore. And so, why does it say, therefore? So, we're going to back up a little bit to the last couple of verses that we didn't read last week in 1 Peter 4. 17 through 19. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to the godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. So as we enter into chapter 5, there's a sense of urgency or importance. Um, This is of ultimate significance and seriousness, and it prompts us to have a sober and solemn state of mind. Um, We're we're thinking about final judgment. This is eternal judgment. And on the one hand, we're reminded that we as Christians... um, if you've chosen Jesus, if you followed that narrow path, that we escape God's wrath um, by the blood of Jesus. That it says that we barely um, find that section. It says that we, if the righteous are barely saved, there's there's a there's a there's a way, there's a narrow way, and so on. The one hand, we've found that narrow way and we escape, but on the other hand, there's those who have not found that path, and. They don't have faith in God, and they're currently headed down a path of destruction. So with that thought in mind, that our faith is of ultimate significance, that it is, it is the matter between being on the, on the right side of judgment or the wrong side of judgment when that day comes, and we need to encourage each other to hold fast to that faith, it's with that in mind um, that the elders are, are encouraged, the elders specifically are encouraged um, to lift up the church, and that the rest of the church should follow um, their example and serve eagerly those that are entrusted to you. So back to uh, 5.1, it says, And now a word to you who are elders in the church. I, too, am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I, too, will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. Peter, though he is the thought of as the chief apostle. He's not commanding this as an authority figure, but as a fellow laborer, he says, I appeal to you. Care for those who God has entrusted to you. For CW and Scott and Gordy and Dave and myself, um, all of you who call Bible Center your home, you are part of the flock that God has entrusted us to. But all of us should ask, who has God entrusted to me? Like I said, He's specifically encouraging elders, but the principle is the same for all of us. Who has God placed in an, in an, in your area of influence? Uh, maybe you have an employee or a niece, or maybe it's a young couple that live that sits a couple couple rows from you at church. Um, these are all opportunities for you to care for someone and to serve God. Uh, Ephesians four sixteen says. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. You've all been placed in this church at this time with these other believers so that they can help you grow and so that you can help the other parts grow. So the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. The next thing that Peter reminds us, um, he says, to do it willingly, to be eager to care for them. Is a, uh, it reminded me of a story, uh, not a story, but, but a, a memory from the past. Uh, my sister, uh, I'll let you guess which one, um, but uh, she was in high school and she used to do some babysitting, and uh, there was one family that she babysat for sporadically. Um, and uh, I don't know exactly how the conversation came up, um, but the mother said to her, she said, you're only doing this for the money, aren't you? And uh, my sister, I don't I don't know what she said um, to the person at the time, but I know when she came home, she's like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> you know, it's like she didn't have any, you know, real close connection with these kids she, she babysat them one every once in a while um, she if she was asked to do it without pay she would not have been willing you know she wouldn't have been eager to go do it her main goal was so that she would get paid it was what she could get out of it so I can understand as a parent um, you would love it if your kids were cared for with the same attitude that you have for them but I think that might have been asking a little much of a 14 year old that babysit sporadically. But elders, we are not called to have the attitude of a sporadic teenage babysitter. We are called by God to serve, this, to serve this body as unto the Lord. So we strive to care for them the same way that God would want to care for them. And I know that's already the heart of the elders in this church, but it is good for us to remember nonetheless. Uh, members of Bible Center, follow that example care for each other, and build each other up in their faith. Um, to those in position of leadership, specifically pastors and elders, it says, don't lord it over people assigned to you. This is First Peter 5, 3. Don't lord it over people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example, and when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. It is particularly important for the leaders of the church to set an example for the rest of the body. Um, We have to think about what we choose to do, what we choose to say, what we choose not to do, what we choose not to say. Um, We want to display to those that God has entrusted with us the kind of behavior and attitude and care for them um, the way he would want us to. I know as a parent, it's not sometimes until you see uh, the reflection of your behavior in your kids that you uh, that you see that maybe it wasn't as loving or patient or kind as you thought um, i don't know if you've ever seen that even little things like saying i you know i hate that or that's stupid like when i say it i don't notice it but when my kids copy the words that i said it's just like oh like it's it's like yuck i don't like that i don't i don't like my you know I don't. I don't like to see my kid use the word hate, even if it's about broccoli. I don't know. I just hate. Just seems like a, a strong word. Um, actually, my kids have always liked broccoli. I don't know, but it's a thing. Um, we have to lead by setting a good example. What growth do we desire to see in those that we lead, and are our actions setting an example that would lead to that type of growth? Those leaders who serve well as they care for the flock, they will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. I have to say I've, I've uh, never, I haven't really, I've received a couple like little, you know, third place trophies. Nothing that really had any value to me. But the idea of receiving anything from God that says that he is pleased with me, that I, that I used the gifts and talents that he gave me, I invested my life well and he's pleased with that, makes me eager to serve well. And that's why we serve, because we want to bring honor and glory to God. We want to please him. Uh, moving on to verse 5, it says, In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Just as the elders are submit are to submit to God's calling and be willing and eager to please him, the younger are to accept the authority of the elders. Um, this is kind of pointing back, if we look back to chapter 2 and chapter 3, we talked about submitting to government authorities and we talked about submitting to one another. Um, God is a God of order, and if God uh, places those in leadership in our government and he allows them to be authority, how much more would he place the leaders in the church? So be willing to receive instruction from those that God has placed. Um, Secondly, it doesn't help much if the elders are taking their responsibility seriously and serving with the right attitude and using their gifts to try and lift up the church if those who are in the church are not willing to be led. So just a side note, I did not, choose this book because of this verse this isn't because I'm a new pastor um it just is in there so uh this was the next uh the next chapter this is the next verses and and here we are so um God has a, a plan for the church he has a structure for the church and uh and he his desire is to care for us and and this is his his plan for that it starts off uh So this this verse, um, it started off by saying, you who are younger, probably because younger people um, are more likely to need correction, um, but it continues to say, all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. Um, Philippians 2 verse 3 says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves. Uh, when I was praying, uh, when I was preparing this message, I, I felt uh, I, I had songs came to mind. Um, how great you are! Um, how great is our God? Came to mind. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Came to mind. Um, I started thinking about the throne room of heaven. Um, I remembered the stories of the people who came face to face with the glory of God and how they they fell to their knees and they um, they had this they were humbled with a sense of unworthiness. Um, that is so evident when you're, when you're compared to the holiness of God. So if we ever struggle with pride, if we ever struggle uh, to be humble with other people, to humbly submit to someone that we feel maybe that we're more qualified than, um, all we have to do is adjust our scale. So instead of looking at them and the comparison between uh, i don't know if you've ever looked at bar graphs or whatever or line graphs, but if you're just looking at you and somebody else, you might notice the difference because the scaling is is going to show is going to show that difference if you throw God and his holiness into the picture and you're you were looking at at this little difference between you and somebody else, all of a sudden it's a straight line there's 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 no reason to look at yourself as being greater than somebody else because in comparison to God, you know we're we're all pretty even. Um, so it's a, and it's okay it's okay if uh, if we recognize that uh, that we're all unworthy that we're all uh, that we all have issues that make us kind of on the same plane, uh, because we, we recognize that in our weakness. It says that in our weakness, in our humility, that is when, at the right time, God will lift us up in honor. So if we don't exalt ourselves, um, leave it to God. Trust in God. Be humble before God, and He will lift you up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, 26 through 29, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things that the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose those things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things that are despised in the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the, in the presence of God. We have nothing to boast about. We have nothing that makes us better than someone else because we all have the same creator. God created us and he created us each for a purpose. And if someone is lifted up into a position or placed into a position that you think that you could do better at, God says, yeah, that's what I said I would do, right? Because in the end, it's not to bring glory to that person. It's to bring glory to God. So in our weakness, we are made strong so that God can receive the glory. So if you ever wonder why somebody's put in a place and you're like, "Man, really God, you wanted them there?" maybe it's to bring God glory. Um, verse seven. First, or First Peter 5, 7 says, Give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. God cares about you. In some translations, verse 6 and 7, are actually the same sentence. And it kind of makes a little bit more sense when we look at it that way. The New King James says it this way, when we look at them together, it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. So in the same breath as we're talking about humility, we're talking about casting your cares upon him. Um, Not worrying is connected to humility. I don't know if you've ever thought um, that carrying your own worries might be a form of pride, might be a form of pridefulness, but essentially when you are worrying, it's saying no to God's help. It's saying that you don't need him, that you've, you've got it on your own. Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. His way is better. His way is better anyways, right? I mean, his ways are higher than our ways. We need to trust in him. His plans are, for, are to prosper you, not to harm you. His plans are to give you hope and a future, and you can't fulfill his plans or experience that hope or future if you're weighed down with worry. Um, worry is one of those things kind of like unforgiveness. Uh, if you hold on to anger towards somebody, um, if you refuse to forgive them, they can move on with life, right? They they don't have to carry that. The only person that it really hurts is you. And that's how it is with worry. It has no value. It accomplishes nothing. Um, it just hurts you. If we look at Luke 12, verses 25 through 26, it says, can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what, what's the use of worrying over the bigger things? Um, we've talked a lot about suffering over the last couple weeks. Um, we've, we've done that so that we can be armed and ready, prepared to endure it, um, not so that we could carry the weight of worry about sufferings that might come. We trust in God. Um, we've talked about trusting in God in suffering, knowing that he will work it all for good, that there's a reward for enduring it, that our faith is strengthened, and that we have hope in him and our soul is anchored in him when we when the storm hits. Um, Luke 12 goes on to say that God even cares for the ravens and the lilies and you are far more valuable um, than that, and he will certainly care for you. The next thing that uh, Peter does is he warns us about the devil. Um, I have to admit, uh, I wasn't really looking forward to this part. I was kind of hoping that maybe uh, I would just maybe just talk on the first part. I don't know. I was going to hit it eventually, but I just it's not that it's not that i um i'm afraid of the devil or that the, because the the concept is uh is the concept of the devil isn't very popular um really it's just cuz i don't like him i i just i i don't i don't want to give him more credit or recognition than he deserves like i'd rather leave his name out of it i don't i would i would rather um, you know, under-connect him with an event or something that happens, then then accidentally give him credit for something he didn't do. Um, I just don't like to give him give him the airtime. But um, the Bible talks about him. It's funny, even in even in the message when I write when I write the name Satan or devil, I I, I like to spell it with a with a lower letter because I just I, I don't know. I just don't want to. I don't. I don't know. Anyways, that was a side note, not in my notes. Um, anyway, uh, Peter warns us about him. It's in the Bible, um, and it's right after he encourages the elders to care for the flock. So we know that it's important, and so uh, I'm going to warn warn about him. I'm going to share what, what Peter says, not to his credit, but as a reminder that he is beaten. Amen. Amen. Um, so I mentioned that the idea of the devil is not popular. Um, it's not popular even among Christians. I, I, this was I thought, found very interesting. It's a little bit of an older poll, um, but it's still very insightful. There's a Barna poll out there. They, they, um, they talked to 1,871 self-described Christians who were who asked about their perception of God. 78% of those asked um, said that he is an all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of the universe who rules the world today. So they they held to a biblical understanding of God. The remaining 22% chose other descriptions that were not biblically accurate. Okay. Then these Christians were asked if they agree with the statement, Satan is not a living being but a symbol of evil. That Satan is, is not really real. Do you agree with that? Only 26% Answered that they strongly disagree. So that means that 74% said that, yeah, maybe Satan is just, just a symbol. Um, the rest were so they were either they're unsure or that's what they thought. So so out of those Christians, only, only 22%. Sorry, only 26% really believed in the devil. Really believed that he was a real person. A real being, um, so even if you account for the 22 percent that didn't actually believe in a in in a god, so they, they didn't believe in the god of the Bible, I would say they're they're you don't believe in the god of the Bible, you're not really a Christian. So if we we eliminate those 22 percent and we assume that those 22 percent probably also didn't believe in the devil, um, that still leaves 66 percent of Christians who believe in the god of the Bible um, don't. Believe that the devil is real, and it's just I don't know I mean he's the devil's mentioned many times throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament it's just uh crazy to me to think that there's there's people who believe in God call themselves christian that that many sixty six percent don't actually believe that the that the devil is a real being um, but the devil is real um, and here in verse eight we're warned about him so uh going to verse eight. Says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. So if you think the devil's just after you, we're all experiencing the same kind of suffering. Okay. Um, If you are looking at this, how this ties um, to the rest of this chapter and what we've been looking at um, with humility and worry, um, we can ask ourselves these questions. How do we overcome pride and become humble? We recognize that God is the source of our strength, right? How do we overcome worry? We release them to God, trusting in his power over our panic. And how do we overcome the devil? We stand firm against him and be strong in faith in God's powerful word. Okay, so in every situation, whether we're talking about our our pride or worry or overcoming the devil, um, it is in God's power that we overcome. We are to be strong in faith. In some translations, it says uh, "stay firm" or "steadfast in faith." It's not about our own personal strength; um, it's in our our trust in, and and uh, footing in Christ, in His Word. It is um, so being strong in your faith is being so convinced in the truth of the Word of God that. You cannot be convinced otherwise. James says it this way in chapter 4, verse 7. It says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a word we're getting used to hearing, right? Submit. Submit yourselves. Again, our strength is not in us, but when the devil attacks, we don't pump up and show the devil how strong we are. We humbly point to God and acknowledge that God is our champion. He is our defender, and Satan must flee. The devil would love uh, to tempt you to fight on your own. And the truth is, he doesn't even have to take a swing. He can just subtly tempt you, distract you, busy you, um, in ways that you're not even aware of until you're tired physically, mentally, and you've spent so little time with God in worship and prayer in fellowship with other believers, that you are spiritually weak, and then he's got you. Then you're you're susceptible. You're susceptible to to depression. You're susceptible to sin. You're susceptible to to whatever he wants because you're you're distant. You're separated from the strength that is your your fortress. That is your. Um, That is your protection. Um, Here's a quick, somewhat quick, I don't know if it's quick or not, uh, here's a description of our adversary, the devil. Uh, He was the most beautiful of angels and he had a prominent position in heaven. He became prideful and he wanted to be worshipped as God was worshipped. He rebelled against God and convinced a third of the angels to fight with him. He was then cast out of heaven and has been an enemy of God and his people ever since. We first see Satan on earth in the garden um, where God had created man in his own image. He created them for an intimate relationship with him. And Satan saw this as an opportunity to strike back against God. And he deceived Eve and Eve persuaded Adam and sin and separation from God entered the world. But what Satan saw as maybe a minor victory was actually the beginning of his own demise. Because because of his attack on mankind, God promised that one day a descendant of the woman would defeat him. So then Satan went back to scheming and directing a majority of his focus on trying to stop this promised child from ever being born. Spoiler alert, um, that didn't go very well. <laughs> By the way, Merry Christmas, Satan. Um, I... I know I've talked about not giving zingers, but I figure if there's ever a chance to give a zinger, I think it's, it's here giving it to Satan. So um, we can see Satan's influence throughout the Bible. Uh, he deceived Cain, which ended in, up in him killing Abel. We see his fingerprints of deception throughout the days of Noah with all of the, the sin that filled the hearts of, of men. Um, after the flood, we see attacks on Abraham, um, causing divisions in his family, uh, attempts to wipe out the entire nation of Israel on on many occasions, uh, and also luring them back over and over again to worshiping false gods. Even David was susceptible to this. If we look in First Chronicles twenty one one, it says Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. Maybe doesn't sound like a, a super awful thing to do, but this was something God had instructed him not to do, or at least not in the way that he did it. And he knew at the moment he was doing it. He was, he was warned by, by someone else that he should not, uh, not do this evil thing, that it was a sin against God, but he was tempted and he did it any, anyways. Satan desires to cause us to sin, to separate us from God, cause affliction, to, to hurt God and try and destroy us. So whether it's afflicting one person at a time or trying to exterminate the entire nation that the Savior was to come through, Satan wanted to stop God's plan. After Jesus was born, before he started his ministry, Satan attempted to deceive Jesus himself. And when that failed, he tempted Judas and deceived him and eventually caused him to betray Jesus. But God's plans cannot be defeated. Satan was actually used by God to accomplish his plans. Jesus came to die for our sins. Satan orchestrated that somebody would kill him despite the fact that he had no sin. Jesus' death on the cross was actually further sealing Satan's fate and was the ultimate undoing of the sin that he so proudly orchestrated in the Garden of Eden. So Satan is still trying to stop God's plans uh, to whatever degree he can. Uh, he, he wants to distract us. He wants to disrupt us from doing what God has called us to do, from living the life that God wants us to live, and from having our hope and faith in him and following that narrow way and being on the reward side of judgment. His fate is sealed and he wants to take as many with him as possible. So as we work our way back to the main point um, of staying alert, of watching out, it would be helpful to know some of the ways that Satan operates. Uh, for time's sake, I'm not going to read all these verses. I'll just give you the references. If you want to write them down and look them up, look them up later, you can. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.5 depicts him as tempting you when you are vulnerable. 2 Corinthians 11.3 3 says that he will try to deceive us the same as he did Eve by mixing truth with lies. John 10.10 says he desires to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. In Zechariah 3, we see Satan accusing Joshua as he stands before God, and he is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. Brethren. Um, Revelations 2.10 describes him as using people and even authorities to orchestrate persecution against Christians. In Acts 5, 3, we see that he filled the heart of Ananias and his wife so much with with a lust for wealth and pride, so much so that they lied, it says that they lied to the Holy Spirit. He tempts, deceives, accuses, lures our minds with half-truths and evil schemes and orchestrates persecutions, all with a desire to see us destroyed. All in all, He's a rotten kind of guy. When I was writing this, I was reminded of uh, a Christmas song, not a Christian Christmas song, but uh, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. There's three words that best describe you are as followed, and I quote, stink, stank, stunk. So as much as it stinks, um, much as he stinks, as much as it stinks that we have to deal with him, He is real, and we have to be aware of him and how he operates and how to resist him. Uh, 1 John 3.12 says, We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. The word belonged here, and sometimes it's actually translated as the word by, so who by the evil one um, was tempted and killed, his brother Cain. Um, it's an interesting word. It's a preposition. It's a Greek word, ek, e k, ek. ek. Um, there's a, a Greek study tool called Helps that says that is one of the most underrated, um, or under translated, not underrated, under translated Greek words. It has a two layered meaning. Um, which is out from and to, which makes it an outcome-oriented word. It says, um, out of the depths of the source and extending to its impact on an object. So in other words, um, Cain had allowed evil or temptation in his heart. He didn't resist it, and it matured, and it caused him to act out in murder. And, um, if he would have resisted, he wouldn't have belonged to the evil one. But he allowed the temptation to enter, to linger, and to mature into action. So how could he have resisted? It says, just like Abel. In Genesis 4, um, it says, The Lord accepted Abel and his gift. And in verse 7, it says, you, you, it's 4-7, oh yeah, yes, sorry, um, you, so the first word, speaking of Cain, you will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then what? Watch out. Just like Peter said, watch out and stay alert. Uh, verse 7 continues saying, Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. There's the old saying that sin will lead you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin gives the devil a foothold. That was Cain's mistake. He 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 allowed, he was already practicing evil. He didn't offer the, the the sacrifice that God had required of him. Um, he, was, he was doing things that were not in accordance to what God desired, and he was sinning before he ever got to the point of murdering his brother. He gave the devil a foothold. He gave him something to work with. Um, when we do that, he can hold it over our heads. He can make you feel guilty. If anybody's ever sinned and and just sat in that guilt for a while. Um, Been reminded of it over the years. The devil uses sin to make you feel guilty. He uses it to try to convince you that you are no good. He can drive you to depression. He can cause you to feel like uh, you need to cover it up. You need to bury it. Um, And you find out that you end up burying it under a mountain of lies and then you live in constant fear that someday somebody is going to find out. Or he can cause you to shift your focus off of the comparison of God and his holiness and start to compare yourself to others and say, I'm, I'm not as bad as that other guy. And Little by little, you tell the Holy Spirit, I'm not interested in your conviction. I'm not interested in that comparison. And you get further and further and further away from the God that loves you and cares for you and wants to set you free. So when you sin, because we all do sin, we're none of us, I think, is going to make it from here to death without uh, making a mistake. But when you sin, repent right away. Don't give Satan a foothold. If you're struggling with a sin that's reoccurring in your life, the Bible teaches us, Confess that sin to somebody else. Find a brother or sister in Christ. Tell them about it. It says so that you can be healed. You can be set free of that sin. Hiding it only gives sin and Satan more control in your life. We need to be aware of the temptations of Satan. He is sneaky. He is subtle. Satan is called the deceiver. It's one of his names. He's good at it. That is why we need to stay alert. And that is why we need to be armed with a truth that is God's word. If you don't know what the truth is, it's pretty hard to recognize the lie. It's pretty easy for him to deceive you if you don't know what is true. Uh, Most of you uh, are familiar with John 8.32. If you haven't heard it at church, you probably heard it in a movie or on a TV show. Um, We're going to lead into it with the end of Verse 31, John uh, says, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm going to say that, I'm going to repeat that one more time. It says, uh, "This is this is key. So just really look at every part of this. It says, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Being faithful to the teachings means that you don't just know them in your head but you're filling your heart with them to the point that it is changing your actions so that we are not sinning and we're not giving Satan a foothold, right? So if we're truly his disciples we're going to We're going to be faithful to the word of God and we're not going to give Satan a foothold. And you will know the truth. We have to know the truth. Um, When Satan comes at you with a desperate attempt to deceive you about your salvation or about your worth or tempts you with the pleasures of sin, the answer is easy if you know the truth. It is no because the word of God says And then you say what you know to be true. Our primary example of this is Jesus in the desert. Um, He was tempted by Satan. Um, Satan figured this was his weakest moment. This was the opportune time. He'd been in the desert for 40 days fasting, being all by himself. And Satan came along and he tempted him with food, with fame, and with fortune. And what were the words out of the mouth of Jesus? No, no. The scripture says, and then he quoted the truth. Jesus was watching. He was alert, and he stood firm in the faith in the word of God. He knew what the word of God was. When, Jesus, when Satan said the lie, Jesus recognized it because he knew the truth. We are to stand firm, strong in our faith, Faith in God and faith in his word. Um, You can say, I have faith that what God says is true. But if you don't know what God says, uh, it's not really going to help you stay alert. It's not going to help you stay prepared. Just because you say that you believe it, you have to know what it is. Otherwise, when Satan comes with his deceptions, you wouldn't recognize him even if you saw them. You have to know the truth to recognize the lie. Um, Verse 10, as we move to the end, if the worship team could come. Verse 10 says, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by the means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you, on a firm foundation, all power to Him forever, Amen. Um, there's a there are a lot of kind of complex topics surrounding the devil, and uh, there's great scholars that have uh, wrestled with you and debated over the decades and centuries about whether the devil, you know what. What role does the devil have? Um, Why is the devil allowed to do what he's able to do? Um, What are his exact limitations? Or or even why do we suffer? We do not need to know all of those answers. I I mean, it would be nice to know all those answers, but until we do, um, it's okay to just take what we do know, what we do see clearly, um, and apply it to our lives. We know that God is love. We know that God is good, and we know that God is in control. And if it is he who causes everything to work together for good, for those who love him, and who are called according to his purposes, um, then we can trust that whatever suffering we encounter, uh, whatever temptations uh, Satan is allowed to throw at us, that God is going to work it for good. We trust that God is in control, even as he used Satan to accomplish his will in, in us receiving salvation. Sounds like a weird way to say it, but he had a role to play. God used him for the good of those who he loves and are called according to his purposes. So if we stand firm in our faith, if think of it this way. If you were trying to uh, build your spiritual muscles, if you're trying to to not spiritual muscles, if you're just trying to grow muscles, if you're trying to to get um, to exercise and get stronger, um, if if you move your arms in a motion and there's no resistance against them, if there's if there's nothing that you're pushing against, you're gonna you're gonna be weak. So if for no other reason, God wants us to depend on him. He wants us to know him and he wants us to love him and he wants us to have a relationship with him. And how easy would it be for us to stay focused on ourselves and our own desires if we didn't have to push back, if we didn't have anything? Nobody likes suffering. And like I say, people have debated these things for centuries um, on why, why God allows all these things. But in the end, we know that God's desire was to work for good, that God loves us and that God has a plan for us to have a reward in eternity with him. So like I said, that doesn't mean it always feels good. Um, In fact, it can feel like suffering, right? Um, But why else would he encourage us to rejoice in our suffering uh, other than that it will result in our good? So whether uh, it causes us to further die to sin or grow more intimate with and more dependent on God or results in heavenly heavenly rewards beyond, um, our understanding is that we can smile and we can rejoice in faith and look forward to the victory that Jesus has promised for all of us. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion but when we stand firm, strong in the faith in God's word, he will flee. Jesus' birth was announced in the heavens by a host of angels and still Satan could not stop God's plans because his parents trusted God and obeyed his instructions and Jesus gave Satan no foothold of sin to use against him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, He endured the cross disregarding its shame and is now seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. How do we overcome pride and become humble? We recognize God is our source, the source of our strength. How do we overcome worry? We release them to God, trusting in his power over our panic. And how do we overcome the devil? We stand firm against him Strong in the faith, in faith in God, and in his powerful word, using the truth of his word to shine a light on darkness and causing it to flee. Go tell the world that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is born. Merry Christmas.